0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. So how to read Das Kapital in 45 minutes. It sounds kind of like an advertisement for a speed reading course. Mm-hmm. Impress your comrades, impress your boss. Read Das Kapital in 45 minutes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is Mark Steele in the room?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Good. I want to borrow one of his jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> why is it that Americans always like to say Das Das Kapital. It would be the equivalent of, uh, say, Paul DiMatteo's book, The Meaning of Marxism. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, we like to sort of throw that dot in there. Okay, Mm -hmm. that didn't work very good. Mm -hmm. I
1: guess
0: it's it's more delivery than the content of the (laughs) joke. When I first started doing this talk, I did a big printout of sort of just look at books in print that had Marx's name and capital in it. And there's a very large number of books that tell you how to read capital. This is just a a list of some of them. You can explore capital, you can reclaim capital, you can learn how capital is constituted, you can go beyond capital, you can learn the nature of capital or the logic of capital, you can get a guide to capital. Here's a particularly interesting one I liked. You can learn about capital today, I suppose as opposed to yesterday or tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of suggested ways of reading capital. One of my favorite topics is reading capital politically.
1: But politically. <laughs>
0: hmm, I mean, what other way is there to read Capital? Socially, maybe? Say, at a party? <laughs> yeah, it's not that far-fetched. Um, you can actually read a lot of Marx's work while you're stoned. Uh, particularly his philosophical writing.
1: <laughs> a worker is not what he
0: ought to be. He's what... He is that he ought to be, that which he could be. I mean, you can get kind of deep. In fact, that, that's... that's, that's, that's some of my best conversations about Marxism have been, well, have been altered. But somehow, it doesn't really work with capital. M, uh, C, uh, M prime. I mean, just, it doesn't really work. So, before we go further in how to read Capital, a few more suggestions on how not to read Capital. (laughs) You should probably avoid reading Capital with a yellow highlighter. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever sat down with a really dense book and said, I'm going to, you know, all the stuff I don't understand or all the really deep points you end up highlighting? This actually happened to me the first time I tried to read Capital back in high school. I ended up with a completely yellow page, in fact, a yellow volume. (laughs) (laughs) There's another way that's probably not good to read Capital doesn't really work as a bedtime story, <laughs>
1: um, although you could try.
0: <laughs> but before we sort of, there's more room in the front for folks coming in. Um, before we delve more into how to read Capital, let's talk a little bit about why we should even bother. Marx talks a lot about the concept of fetishization fetis- in Capital. Fetishization is the belief that an object possesses some sort of magical powers uh, naturally. Now, did we read Capital <coughs> simply because Marx spent nearly 20 years working on it? Oh, these are pictures of Marx being fetishized. <laughs> <laughs> did we simply read it to impress other folks in the ISO? Oh, look, there goes Mary. Wow, she's got volume two of Capital in her arm. She must really be clever. <laughs> Unfortunately, the left is not above fetishizing some texts. When I first came around the left, I could go to a Mao's meeting where people got up and hurled quotes from Mao's little red book at each other. Well, oh, I could go to a Trotskyist meeting where middle-aged men with linen goatees would throw long, obscure quotes of Trotsky and Marx at each other. It was really quite bizarre, actually quite frightening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's actually a legitimate question to ask why we should read Capital. Um, I'm assuming that you got up at uh, 10 a.m. on Sunday morning after the party, after the rally last night, and that you're at Socialism 2008. So I'm assuming that you're, you're here with the assumption that Marx may have something to say in the book. So I'm not going to go into a long explanation of why I think it's relevant for Dave, but I do want to bring it up to the discussion. I say let's just take Marx at his own word. In the preface, Marx says he wants to produce a theoretical weapon for the workers' movement. The object of capital, which he says in the preface, is, quote, to reveal the economic law of motion of modern society. Now, Marx wanted to understand contemporary capitalist society, identify its strengths and limitations, and look at its potential for transformation. In capital, you're going to find all the facts of modern society analyzed, from prices, profits, to wages, to the length of the working day, why money is so all-powerful, how and why capitalism originated, and why economic crisis happens. Now, previous economic thinkers had grappled with one or another aspect (laughs) of capitalism. Marx Try to, s- to understand the whole the thing as a whole. So, one last preliminary before we really get into it. I had to decide sort of what level to pitch this presentation. Now, this is billed as an advanced meeting, uh, but that's a very vague concept. And my sense is that even among um, comrades, experienced comrades in the ISO, the level of exposure to Marxist economic ideas is somewhat limited. I could go up to the bar at socialism and make a <coughs> provocative political or historical statement. I could go up and say something like, you know, if, if Trotsky had just started the left opposition six months before he could have defeated Stalin, and I'd immediately get into a very opinionated debate. Or I could, you know, bring up some nuance of the German Revolution, and the same thing to happen. But if I slid up next to you at the bar of socialism and said, you know, I think Marx got the relative composition of capital wrong. He underestimated the value of constant capital to living capital. You'd probably look at me like I'm crazy and walk away as fast as you could. So why this is not an introductory talk, um, I will not be pitching at too high of a level. I'm gonna avoid algebra, although Marx makes extensive use of it. I'm gonna minimize the amount of math, and I'm gonna try to keep the formulas to a minimum, pretty much what you see here. Now I apologize in advance if I made it too simplistic. If you're working on your PhD in economics, you're probably gonna be disappointed, but do not leave, because I'm gonna need your help in the discussion. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously I can't cover all of Marx's three volumes in the 44 minutes I have left. Um, I'm not even gonna (coughs) be able to outline all the ideas. My goal is much more modest. I hope to give you kind of a roadmap map of some of the important ideas, sort of the building blocks that you're going to need when you try to tackle capital. Offer a few insights, make a few suggestions, so it's kind of a hodgepodge in that respect. And when I sat down to write this talk, I thought of the tools I wish I had when I first tried to read <coughs> capital back in high school. So when I finish, I hope to give you some reasons why it's worth reading capital, to make the prospect of reading capital less intimidating, and instill in you a desire uh, on your part to tackle some of Marx's economic writings. Um, let me start with some general remarks about the book itself. Um, I was not able to print up the bibliography, but I will stick my email address up there, and if you uh, email me, I'll send you sort of the bibliography and some suggested readings. The Capital was a gigantic multi-volume project started in the mid-1840s. It was never completely finished. In the earliest surviving letter from Engels to Marx, Engels was already urging Marx to turn his economic and political notes into a book without delay. Three months later, we see Engels writing to Marx again, his impatience growing, and he writes, do try and finish your political economy book, even though there's there much in it that you yourself are dissatisfied with. <laughs> Marx finally did sign a contract for a book on economics in 1845. If he thought he'd finish the book very quickly, that's what this is, so it's starting out small and getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> In 1851, he writes to Engels that this economic crap should be finished in five weeks. <laughs> Marx often referred to his work in this period as the economic shit. <laughs> so when you get back to your branch and people say, "What'd you do with Marxism?" said, so "I went to the economic shit." <laughs> <laughs> and throughout Marx and Engels' correspondence, you're going to find for the next 16 years similar correspondence from Engels showing his exasperation and urging Marx to hurry up and finish the book. And Marx with his very over-optimistic expectations of when he's going to get done. It was sixteen years later that volume one finally came out and the remainder was not uh, published until after Mark's death with Ingalls as the editor. Now Mark suffered a lot of, a variety of medical ailments while he was writing Capital. Carbuncles, boils, gas, respiratory problems, liver problems, and while many were the product of his extreme poverty, poverty, uh, some were obviously stress related. He writes to Ingalls that the day he finished the last page of Capital his boils disappeared. Now, I'm not sure why I'm telling you that. I think it's kind of Mark Steele's influence. But. Now, Capital Cap- is, uh, there's a saying the Capital is widely known but rarely read. British Prime Minister Harold Wilson once boasted he'd only gotten as far as page two of Capital before he gave up. And the first time I tried to read it, I made it further than, than uh, Mr. Wilson. But it is hard going. In the preface, Marx freely admits. The understanding of the first chapter, especially the section that contains analysis of commodities will present the greatest difficulty. Then he again goes on to claim he's already popularized that section, the implication being, look, I've already simplified it for you, what are you complaining about? <laughs> Marx also defends the difficulty by saying, look, I'm the first guy in 2,000 years that's figured this out, I mean, what do you expect? But since we're not fetishizing Marx, yeah, I think it is okay to say that Marxist style can also be difficult. And you can read sort of Engels when he saw the final version of Capital, he just groaned. He said, "Chapter four is 200 pages. There's no sections. Nobody's going to read that." Um. So here <laughs> is here's the first helpful uh, hint that makes this all worthwhile. This is advice that Marx sends to his friend Francesca Kugelman. He says, "When you write, when." If you're going to start with uh, Capital, start with chapter 10, 13, 14, 15, and part 8. These are the so more accessible and easy parts to read. Then go back to the early chapters. And now, this makes it all worthwhile, now that you've got that <laughs> in. Now, a couple of things about the overall flavor of the book. Yes, it's a compendium of statistics, history, philosophy, and, of course, economics. But there's much more in it as well. Marx was a voracious reader, and it shows in Capital, with his extraordinary breadth of reference. In Capital, you'll find Marx juxtaposing <coughs> voices and quotations from mythology, literature, from factory reports, fairy tales, newspaper articles, and parliamentary commissions. Parts of it have a Dickinson texture. At one moment, he's speaking in the voice of Shylock to justify child labor. Another point, he takes on a character from Dickens. And one of my problems when I first tried to read it is I'm not very versed in English literature. So some of the references kind of just sort of went over me. But if you're an English uh, literature major, I think you're gonna enjoy it. <laughs> One of Marx's favorite books was Frankenstein, the tale of a monster that turns against its creator. And you'll continually find references in Capital of something dead coming to life and dominating or crushing the living, or sometimes inanimate objects coming to life and, and turning on its creator. Marx also loved the vampire analogy, such as Capital's dead labor just like the vampire lives by sucking in the blood of living labor. Okay, so that's enough preliminaries, now let's jump into it. <coughs> Wrong
1: way. Oh, I'm so sorry. Sucking the blood out the
0: room. Uh,
1: <laughs> uh, oh. Okay, ready? <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right,
1: that was just a joke. That was just to scare you.
0: Marks? Um, ne-
1: <laughs> <laughs> next one. Wait, say what you want to
0: say. The opening paragraph of uh-huh. Capital.
1: There we
0: go. This is the opening paragraph <coughs> of Capital. The wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails appears as an immense collection of commodities. That individual commodity appears as its elementary form. A commodity appears at first sight as an extremely obvious, trivial thing, but its analysis brings out it's a very strange thing, abounding in metaph- metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. So Marx starts out um, looking at commodities. Every day we encounter commodities. Marx often starts with everyday appearances and then digs deeper to see what's behind it. People make commodities, people sell commodities. Under capitalism, as I said, we encounter an immense collection, immense accumulation of commodities. All these worldly things are there to tempt (coughs) us, they're ready for sale. Commodities also bear a white label or a barcode with some very familiar symbols. In fact, it's kind of ironic that this talk itself is going to turn into a commodity that will be for sale for comrades to buy afterwards. (laughs) But commodities appear with price tags on their forehead, talking to us in dollars and cents. The price tag is a unique insignia of the commodity. The accumulation of commodities, this mass of objects with price tags, is what Marx calls the wealth of capitalist society. Marx spends the first 60 pages analyzing commodities. And this can seem like a dry introduction. I venture to say that many first-time readers don't make it past those first sixty pages. But when you think about it, when you step back and really think about it, the commodity is an oddity. I think we don't really think about them because we're so inundated, they're so ubiquitous, we're surrounded by them and we don't really notice it. But when you think about it, a commodity leads its double life. It's a product of labor, made not just for use, but for exchange. Being, quote, for sale, the product acquires a quality that is not present in nature, exchangeability. As a commodity, it's not only useful, it is also exchangeable. Or the language of the early economist, a commodity is something if it has both value and use value. Here is a commodity for you to look at. Look, you'll see on one side use value, one side exchange value. So you can pass that around um, to get the, to sort of get that concept. Now what is a use value? A use value is anything outside of us that we find necessary, useful or pleasant. By the use of its properties, the useful thing allows us to satisfy some need or desire. So in a nutshell, the commodity is valuable valuable both for use and for exchange. Alright, our first definition. Not so bad, right? (coughs) And uh, Just a word on use value. Use value doesn't automatically mean something pleasant. If you're a murderer, a gun is obviously going to be a use value to you. So together, use value and value are the twin sides of a commodity. They are the opposite (coughs) poles of this double life. Marx then goes on to explore the relationship between use, value, and value. Before capitalism began, and even afterwards, really quite recently, production in most parts of the world was production for use. Clothes were made to be worn, not to be sold. Rice, corn, and wheat were harvested and processed to be eaten, not exchanged. In slaveholding antiquity, uh, slaves produced for the use of others, their masters. They seldom produced for exchange. The same is true of European serfs, Chinese peasants, Indian patriarchal families, and working people of other pre-capitalist societies. Use value, not exchange value was the goal and the result of pre-capitalist production. Indeed, producing to sell and profit was typically regarded as immoral, a perverse way of life inspired by greed, gluttony, or vanity. The next thing to notice about use value is how it's alienated under capitalism. <coughs> to the extent that the product is treated as a value, it is alienated as a use value. A commodity has got to be seen useful, <coughs> or appear useful if anyone's going to buy it. But usefulness is not what counts under capitalism. As a commodity, the product must be sold to be used. Sale is a necessary and indisputable prerequisite for its use. Without exchange, there can be no use. If a commodity should fail to demonstrate exchangeability, its usefulness is going to be cancelled. Example, a loaf of bread or a bag of rice sitting on a shelf in a supermarket, its usefulness lies completely dormant. Though it's perfectly edible, The rice or the bread must prove its exchange value before it can be eaten. If no one buys it, the bread will rot on the shelf even though people are hungry and starving. The same is true for every commodity. This is the principle of capitalism. Commodities are produced not to be given away. In Marx's word, alien exchange comes to dominate its natural use. Other examples of the distortion of use value resulting from production for exchange is the sabotage of the product. Business cares about product quality only from the standpoint of sales. If sales are unaffected, business will happily cut costs by skimping on safety precautions and materials, typically making dangerous, useless, or even deadly products. Another example of how exchange value e- eclipses use value is evident in the so-called overproduction. Periodically production results in what business calls an excess of commodities. To reverse matters, business intentionally destroys part of its product. Why? To raise prices. To raise the value. Never mind that people lack adequate housing, medical care, or food. From the profit standpoint, the market glut is a catastrophe. It must be disposed of. Not by making use values freely available to people, but instead by destroying them. So, capitalism requires products universally endowed with exchangeability. Business places a premium on what the object is, but uh, not on what it is, but its value. So now let's move on to exchange value. If commodities are produced to be exchanged, then each commodity has an exchange value. But what is exchange value? Yeah, Marx uh, looks at Aristotle when he attempted to grapple with this problem. <coughs> Aristotle says, consider an exchange of five beds for one house. These <coughs> products are not alike. Beds and houses have different qualities and different uses. How then can they exchange as equal? Are they really equal? He grappled with this and finally he just said, no. Though exchanging them seems to imply equality, beds and houses are not really equal. The appearance of equality is false. In reality, sim- people simply decide to exchange unequal things. Now, if we agree with part of what Aristotle says, that no two objects are exactly alike, because if they were, why would we exchange them? So how can objects that are materially unlike, <coughs> unlike properties, exchange for each other in some kind of established proportion? Now, whereas use value has, to meet a need or satisfy some specific human need, in contrast, the exchange value of a commodity is simply the amount that will exchange for for other commodities. Exchange value reflects what commodities have in common, rather than their specific qualities. So Marx embarks on an exploration of what it is that commodities have in common. <coughs> What's it based on? There doesn't seem to be a connection between a commodity's use value and its exchange value. Take the most important use value in the world, <coughs> oxygen. Without it we would all die, yet it has little exchange value. The books used to say it has no exchange value, but where I work on an ambulance we actually charge for oxygen.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Diamonds on the other hand are of comparatively little value, but they have a very high exchange value. So commodities clearly don't exchange uh, according to the degree of their usefulness. On a survival scale, food is much more important than a nice sound system, but a nice sound <laughs> system has a higher value than food does. An exchange value is not based on weight. A pound of silver is worth more than a pound of wheat. that uh, Capital Marx uses an example. Imagine there are two objects in question, a deer and a beaver, and just two owners, both of them are hunters. (laughs) Suppose it requires one day of hunting to capture a deer, seven days to capture a beaver. If both hunters are equally skillful at catching both types of quarry, then parting with one beaver for one deer seems unreasonable. Why would you do that? But Mark says, actually, there is a commonality between commodities. It's kind of been cut off, I'll read it for you. Despite their motley appearance, commodities have a common denominator. So, what is it that they have in common that permits this exchange to take place? Marx's answer is that all commodities have a value of which exchange value is merely the reflection. The value represents the cost of society to produce that commodity, and that cost is human labor power. Marx argues that the principle that regulates exchange is labor time. Material, material commodities uh, may be totally dissimilar, but they have one thing in common. They require human effort for their production, for their appropriation. This provides a basis for exchange. So by this standard, one deer equals, i mean, sorry, seven deer equals one beaver. That is, each embodies an equal quality of labor. Okay, now this answers one question, but it raises another question. What does it mean to say that a product embodies labor? Just this. There's so much labor goes into a product. Existed before production. Actually, this was also produced, you know, by being grown and by plowed, and who knows what sort of chemicals put into it? Maybe genetically altered. <laughs> but with labor applied to it, it can become this product. So we said that labor is in. Im- lab- this is the original product. Labor is embodied in this can. But what does it mean to say that labor is embodied in this can? I mean, can we look and see what the, that looks like? So how do we measure the amount of labor that's in a a commodity? Our labor is very different. You might work in an auto assembly plant, you might make bread, somebody else might be a carpenter, I work in an ambulance. So how do we compare our labor? Marx adds three refinements to the concept of labor. The first refinement has to do with concrete and abstract labor. Remember we saw commodities have this dual nature, use value and exchange value. Labor also has a dual character. Concrete labor and abstract labor. And I'll pass that around so you can see, right? One side abstract labor, one side concrete labor.
1: <laughs> <All> right, <Stuart. laughs> can I keep
0: it? <laughs> 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 now concrete we'll back one way back. Concrete labor, sometimes referred to in the text as useful labor, exists in all societies. The term just refers to the specific character of the work that you're doing. In this case a seamstress or if you're a a baker or if you're a shoemaker. Each each labor requires specific skills and tasks that are governed by that particular type of value. Uh, Just as the use value of each product differs, so does the useful or the concrete labor corresponding to that use value. Now abstract labor ignores concrete labor and abstracts that essential element of the expenditure of human labor different forms of concrete or useful labor are materially unequal say watchmaking and bedmaking but when tailors and weavers exchange products they view their work not as it really is as concrete labor but as work pure and simple as labor per se equating one coat to three pairs of shoes means equating coat making the labor of a tailor to shoemaking the labor of a cobbler the products are equated so that the la- and so is the labor that goes into them trading um, products means treating them as equal. X hours of one type of qualityless labor equals x hours of another type of quality qualityless labor. This abstractness is what permits exchange. Now, Marx describes this twofold character of labor as one of the best parts of my book. Okay, now this is where it gets a little more complicated. Abstract labor. is complicated because I misplaced my page, okay. <laughs> <coughs> so far, so far, oh, no chemist has ever discovered value in a watch or a coat or any other commodity. Mm-hmm. Look at the watch under a microscope, through a telescope, turn it upside down, inside out, examine it as you will. Uh, whatever you do, you will never hear touch or taste value. All you'll see is a thing in itself to watch. You will never see or hear an natural living person engaged in abstract labor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Only useful things and useful labor are discerned by the senses. Since value is not material, it cannot be materially per- perceived. It's a social, a ghostly social reality. But that doesn't mean it's not real. So in fact, a little prop I handed around, you would not actually be able to see abstract labor in that. So To illustrate this point, Marx uses the example of a king. Here's uh, some royal family. Uh, A king is only a king as a result of social practice. If you take the king away from all his robes and his royalty and just compare him to another human being, he would look just like any other human being. If a coroner took a dead king's body and uh, examined it, they wouldn't find (coughs) blue blood, they wouldn't find a divine right of king in there. All they would find would be a human. But the monarch is treated like a king because his subjects treat him royally. He is a king. Kingly powers and qualities are social, not natural. Naturally and materially, the king is just a man, and so it is with value. In nature, there are no commodities. At the center of the earth and outer space, there are no commodities. Well, I guess there are now at the space station. <coughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> center of the earth, let's stick with that. Nothing is exchangeable where there are no people. Okay, how about the moon? exchange value
1: yeah,
0: in the future. Uh, exchange is an act of human relations. Exchangeability is a property possible only in the context of human social relations. When exchange becomes a universal, systemic principle of production, as it is under capitalism, the exchangeability becomes a socially real attribute of products in general. Ghostly value becomes very real. The other point that Marx wants to make is for us to understand that exchange is a product of human social relations it didn't always exist in the past and it doesn't necessarily have to exist in the future now Marx introduces sort of one more refinement Um, oh actually we'll take a little break here I know it's getting a little deep
1: Excellent.
0: here's a little pep talk from Marx to keep us going (laughs) there is no royal road to science and only those who do not dread the fatiguing climb of its steep paths have a chance of gaining its luminous heights my value concept, in particular, requires serious study. All right, so that's give you a little motivation. To do for anyway. <laughs> the third refinement that Marx adds uh, to labor is labor is a source of all value, but the value of commodity is governed not by how long it actually takes to work to do it. Now, you might be skilled at making a pair of shoes. I might take twice as long to make the same pair of shoes. But we compete for the same market. The fact that I put twice as much labor into the shoes doesn't mean I can charge twice as much for my pair of shoes as yours. I could, but no one's going to buy my shoes if they're exactly the same. If you, as a capitalist, introduce an ascender line to make shoes much quicker, I'm going to have to do the same to meet that. So, the value of labor is not the actual amount of labor time. It's, quote, The labor time required to produce use values under the conditions of production normal for a given society with the average degree of skill and intensity of labor prevalent in that society. All right, so to sum up, commodities have value because abstract labor is objectified in it and the value of a commodity is determined not by the total amount of labor used to produce it, but rather by the socially necessary labor time. Okay, not bad so far. There's uh, more pastry in the back and get coffee if you need some more sugar and caffeine. Keep going. (laughs) Now we'll move on to money. Oh, this was Sorry, I forgot about this. This was socially necessary labor. You see sort of people working their butts off on the other side. And someone's a little bit lower productivity. (laughs) I can't figure out what they're making, but look at the speed of that assembly line. right, uh, money. Value exists in three forms. Commodity, money, and capital. Commodities are use values produced for exchange, which we've just gone over. Money is a universal commodity equivalent to all others. And capital is money invested to generate more money. Now to discuss capital, which has the highest form of value, we need to understand money. How does money emerge from the exchange of commodities? How does money come to dominate the exchange of commodities as capital? Money is used to facilitate exchange. Say that I make a pair of shoes, you uh, make some bread, and you make some coats say that I want, a, I want a coat, but you don't want shoes, so I have to then exchange some bread because you want bread in exchange. You can see, under a system of generalized commodity production, bartering becomes uh, extremely time consuming and inefficient. <laughs> money is a standard measure of the value of all commodities. It emerges as the universe of commodities grows and with the growth of capitalism. If one commodity is used to express the value of many, it becomes money. It plays the role of money most fully when it's rep- recognized universally as the one equivalent commodity, thereby expressing and measuring the value of all others. With the arrival of money, it's no longer necess- necessary to say one coat equals three pairs of shoes, but instead one coat equals fifteen bucks, three pairs of shoes equals fifteen dollars. Yes, you can still exchange three pairs of shoes for one coat, but it's typically now done through money. This function of money as a universal equivalent predates capitalism, but within a system of generalized commodity production, money becomes indispensable. It has the capacity to be exchanged for everything. Now, what, one of my favorite parts of Capital is this section on money, but I've actually had to um, to shorten this a lot. But I found it actually fascinating, where Marx sort of goes through the history of how different commodities, whether in agricultural societies. Or societies that raised animals developed a universal equivalent, whether it be wheat, whether it be cattle, whether it be an implement for, um, for farming. But anyway, I can't go into that. So money emerges as the power of powers, when it becomes a single commodity, uniquely exchangeable for all others. It's the super commodity, and its powers are multiplied uh, more than ever when it functions as capital. Now when we speak of capitalism, we speak not just of money, but of money gained, of money invested as capital to generate profit. In this society, money seems to have the capacity to breed more money. I don't know if someone's got a hundred dollar bill they would like to loan me for a prop? No. But if you happen to have a sum of money capital, all you gotta do is put it in the bank or buy some shares and it seems to grow automatically. On its own. And if we were to leave that $100 bill sitting right here, money will do nothing and it can produce nothing. So where does interest, dividends, and profit come from? Since they all represent an increase in value over the original sum of money, the question can be rephrased in a more general term. How does value generate more value? Or where does surplus value come from? This is the most fundamental question for an economic analysis of capitalism. Some say Mark's answer to this question was his greatest achievement. Certainly at his gravesite, site, Ingalls credited this along with the analysis of historic materialism as being Marx's two great contributions. So let me offer you a contrast. <coughs> Meet here, two people. This is Moneybags. Moneybags is a fictitious hypothetical capitalist that Marx introduces us to in Capital. On the right is somebody I made up, Josephine Worker. Josephine Worker is a friend of ours. She works in a computer factory. You know, Marx talks a lot about watches in, in capital. I think because watches were sort of the most complicated mechanism of the day. So just substitute computer for watch whenever you read capital. Now each of these people bags and Josephine relate to money in a different way. Josephine sells her labor in order to buy. Josephine sells the ability to make computers. In return Josephine sees <coughs> specific needed qualities. She sells the ability to work not Not because she loves to, but for money to seek wages. Next slide, Lloyd? There. This is Josephine. She sells a commodity to get money to buy other commodities, to pay her rent, to buy four dollar a gallon gas, to buy her Big Mac or whatever. So for Josephine, money is a step on the path of selling commodities to buying other commodities. Now it's different with money bags. He enters the scene not as a direct producer, but as a money owner. Where do we have this here? This is money bag cycle here. His goal is to buy commodities to sell them. He spends money to get money. Money for the capitalist is the beginning and the end. Josephine commodities are the beginning and the end for money bags. Money is the beginning and the end. Hmm. It's at the actual reverse. The producer now appears. The next slide there. The producer now appears as a man who enters the market not with produce but with money. He buys not what he wants, but what he does not want for his own use. He buys in a word to resell what he has bought. Now, Moneybags spends money, let's say a thousand bucks, not just to get a thousand dollars back. He does not invest one thousand to get one thousand. He wants to make more money. Moneybags wants to get more value. This is actually more accurate than this. This is money, commodities, this is pronounced money prime. This is a higher value, a higher amount of value that Moneybags is seeking. Now the miracle of money is that properly used, it does produce profits. Money makes money. An initial sum of money gives rise to an expanded sum of money, money prime under capitalism. (coughs) Not simply, as I said, uh, money, commodities, money, but money, commodities, and a higher value of monies. So, the question then becomes, where, well, let's say that uh, this is successful and Moneybags does create a higher, higher amount of value. A portion of the surplus value that Moneybags gets is likely to go for uh, interest since he probably borrowed some of the money to get his production started. Another portion is probably going to be used to pay rent since it's likely that Moneybags at least rents part of the equipment or the tools that he's using. But what remains is pure surplus value belonging directly to Moneybags to use as he pleases. He can do two things with it. He can use it for his consumption or he can make it into a new M to invest it further. So the wealth of capitalist society presents itself as an accumulation of commodities, remember that's how Marx started out, (coughs) it is in reality an accumulation of capital. Capital accumulation is the defining principle of capitalism, an economic goal and process besides which all others pale in, in significance. Capitalism is just the nickname for the system of production based on the accumulation of capital. But we still haven't answered the question, what is the source of this value? How does M become uh, M prime? What happens in that formula? Money bags doesn't simply buy a commodity and then resell that commodity at a higher value. Money is not created in exchange as a byproduct of buying and selling. So, let's try to figure out sort of where that value comes from. If the value of the commodity that money bags buys doesn't change. Money bags is not going to make any money. Money bags needs to find a commodity here that will actually increase the, va- the value, going from money to commodity to increase to make more money. As it happens, there is such a commodity in the world. Money bags is in luck. He finds a special value creating commodity on the market. I speak of human labor, the capacity for labor, a set of <laughs> mental and physical capabilities present in living personality. Now, where money is the super commodity, human labor power is the super, super, super commodity. Money <laughs> buying labor power to the generation of surplus value is what capitalism is all about. Only by purchasing labor power can money act as capital, and only in this way can capital be accumulated. Now, Marx argued he didn't discover the existence of the working class, but he did reveal the secret of surplus value in capitalism. The key lies in labor power becoming a commodity. Now remember early on we said, what is the value of a commodity? The value is the average socially necessary time necessary to, to uh, make that commodity. Since labor time, labor power, in capitalist society is also a commodity, it too now has a value. The average labor time you required to produce the worker, to keep the worker alive and productive, to feed, clothes, house, and so on. Not just the worker, but the next generation of workers as well so that tomorrow's labor power will be roughly the same as today. You might need a little help in education, we'll throw that in, but not too much.
1: <laughs>
0: so historically, the work of reproducing labor power has been reserved for women in the role of either wives or mothers. Alright, let's take any worker at random, Say that the cost of supplying, is it Raymond? The cost of keeping Raymond alive, let's say it's fifty dollars. <throat> a capitalist would be foolish <laughs> Okay, a (laughs) hundred.
1: (laughs) These are to deal with.
0: A capitalist would be foolish to hire Raymond if Raymond didn't at least produce a hundred dollars worth of product, right? Let's say he's a baker and makes bread. If Raymond can't produce a hundred dollars worth of bread, the capitalist is going to lose money. He's going to go out of business. So Raymond's got to be at least able to produce the equivalent of what it costs to keep him alive and coming back to work the next day. But what if the worker produces more? More commodities than the original investment? then the investment is made, uh, the investment works and money is made. If it happens that Raymond can produce the cost of his labor power, 100 bucks, say in four hours, there's nothing to stop the capitalist from working him for the entire eight hours. So now he's produced the cost of his labor in four hours, and four hours now becomes surplus for the capitalist. Um, And these are easy definitions. The time that it actually costs Raymond to produce the things that are necessary for him to stay alive is called necessary labor, or necessary labor time, and the time that he goes above and beyond that is surplus labor time or surplus labor. So workers spend part of their day producing for themselves and their children, and the rest of the time they're working for the capitalist. Capitalism ultimately depends on the commodification of labor power, but how? By what historical process did the human capacity for labor become commodified? By so what process did direct producers become sellers of labor power? And Marx goes through a very long part of capital sort of explaining how labor power became a commodity. How are we to explain this strange phenomenon that we find in the market, a set of buyers owning money, land and machinery, and a set of sellers owing nothing but labor power, <coughs> their arms and their brains? How does it come about that one class <coughs> buys continually to make profits and grow rich, while the working class continually sells labour power <coughs> just to earn a livelihood? Nature doesn't produce capitalists on the one hand and workers on the other hand. i delivered about twenty babies in my job and I'll tell you, we all look alike at birth. <laughs> but somehow, we are different. Um, and Marx sort of goes through, gives a sort of a long history lesson. The process of the history I call the original expropriation of the producer. The series of events and struggles by which producers were divided from the means of production. And the means of production here are crucial. That includes the things such as machinery, buildings, raw materials and land. Um, when production resources are controlled directly by the direct producers, labor production and the means of production kind of combine organically. Take a small farmer or an artisan uh, making hats. They are directly in possession of the needed tools and materials of the trades, and these direct producers simply make use of the production resources they have. As a result, the production <coughs> is independent and self-sufficient but Marx says, take away the land, the livestock, the energy sources, wrench the tools from the producer's hand and what is left. An uprooted <coughs> vagabond whose only possession is labor power. The, the historical precondition for capitalism is the expropriation of the direct producer. Formerly united with the means of production and labor power, they're now separated. Capitalism now takes possession of the means of production, but without the means of production, the r- direct producer has nothing except labor power. To survive, we must sell our labor power for wages. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to cut sort of the long history lesson. But when you're reading sort of part on the making of the uh, English working class, supplement that with reading Mike Davis's Planet of Slums. The process that we saw in England in the 14th, 15th, and 16th century is occurring right now throughout most of the world where direct producers are being removed from the land, turned into first a semi- proletariat and then into an industrial proletariat. All right. Um, Being separated from means of production means that we have little to say about what to produce or why. We don't get to decide whether to make nuclear weapons or to make candy. That becomes the prerogative of the capitalist. If you've ever negotiated a union contract, you'll remember the the management rights clause, which essentially gives management the right to do everything. Remember, early on, we talked about use value is alienated by exchange value. Bread, though its usefulness, is repressed while it waits to be sold. At least if it does sell, it can be eaten. The use of labor power, in the hand, is most fully alienated after we sell it. You'll learn quickly that once you sell your labor power, it belongs not to you, but to money backs. Okay. I'll try to do this in the next five minutes. Um, <laughs> accumulation of capital. So money bags buys two types of commodities to set the production process in motion. Labor power and the means of production. So this gives us, an important point to note here is that surplus value results from just one of these two commodities, labor power. The means of production do add some value in production, but no more than they already embody. No surplus that is. So that gives us our criteria for distinguishing different forms of capital. First is variable capital, refers to the money spent on purchasing labor power. Since the value added to the commodity by labor power varies, introducing the possibility of surplus, we call the money spent for labor power variable capital. How much surplus value, however, will vary depending on how hard and how productively the workers actually work. Constant capital refers to the money spent on purchasing raw materials, equipment, buildings, machinery, and so forth. It's (coughs) termed constant not because its size is fixed. It can grow very rapidly but because its value does not increase in the course of production. Another way to think of it is that constant capital expresses the amount of dead labor in production. Alright, so now we can go to two new equations. We saw in money, commodities, money prime, or uh, the basic change is from from money to money prime. We can now show this with two new equations. Capital, we said, consists of constant capital and variable capital. Money prime, go back one consists of constant capital plus variable capital plus surplus value. Okay? So, that brings us to the rate of surplus value. If the difference between capital and capital one or money and money uh, I'm sorry, money prime, if that's how we choose to depict it, is surplus value and since V is a source of surplus value, it makes sense for us to compare S to V. So, I put the numbers on there just because I think it makes it easier. Let's say V is 5 and S, V is variable capital and S is surplus value. Then S divided by V equals 1 or 100%. The rate of exploitation would be 100%. The rate of profit. The rate of profit is the ratio between surplus value and total investment, both constant and variable capital. While labor is the sole source of surplus value, profits have to be calculated on the total sum of capital invested. So that gives us a definition of the rate of profit. All right? Sorry, I'm going through this a little bit quick. The ratio, this is the organic composition of capital. The ratio of constant variable capital we call the organic composition of capital. When C, remember that's constant capital, the machinery, the means of production, rises relative to V, living labor, we say the organic composition of capital rises. In other words, the more means of production employed relative to labor power, the higher the organic composition of capital. I've just given you a juicy term you can go back to your branch meeting and throw around. <coughs> the organic rate of capital has risen That's uh, producing the economic <laughs> crisis.
1: <laughs> As
0: everyone knows, capitalist production tends to rely on an ever-increasing powerful means of production. Every day high tech gets higher, more powerful machines in production, productivity soars. From simple hand tools, we move to nuclear power plants, automated factories, and advanced computer systems, and much more. Historically, the most important reason for this rapid growth, in the means of production, is competition. The (coughs) capitalists need to reduce the average labor time involved in producing their commodity. How do you reduce the labor time? You increase the means of production. It's a simple rule, but it has earth-shattering consequences. Productivity is revolutionized. It rises steeply, the world fills with commodities, and the danger of economic crisis approaches. So what's the connection? Just this, remember we said that surplus value comes from variable capital, not from C, not from constant capital. So if we're constantly raising the value of C, um, the rate of profit is going to decline. And here I just (coughs) thrown some numbers up again to make it sort of easier for you. Let's take an initial investment let's say that constant capital equals, because I can't do that, <laughs> say $16 million, and they spend $8 million on variable capital, hiring labor. Surplus value is in $8 million. The rate of surplus value is 100%, and uh, the rate of profit is about 33%. But let's say that you go out and buy a whole new factory, you automate it, and your C, your, your means of production, rises, um, what do we say, to 24 then you can see, if you do the formula, that the rate of profit actually falls to 25%. Okay. I think I'm going to forego the counteracting tendencies of the rate of profit to fall because I see Stuart sitting in the front row, and he wrote an excellent article in uh, the ISR on that, so I will defer all questions to him on that. (laughs) But in the interest of time, um, I will just move to the conclusion. So the ability to work, like Marx, so far all of our talk has been about labor power as a commodity, bought and sold, turned into alienated labor under the control of a capitalist who is compelled to compete and is driven to accumulate more (coughs) capital. But Marx asks, rarely is a deeper question asked, why should labor power be a commodity at all? Why should the capitalist control the exercise of labor power giving rise to alienated labor and surplus value when workers could rule themselves? producing a material surplus to meet actual human needs. The ability to work doesn't have to be a commodity with a particular exchange value sold for wages. Rather, living labor, real working people, may unite for democratic, nationless, sexually equal cooperation where we produce for shared use, not for exchange or for profit. (coughs) Without capital, bosses bosses would not be empowered by the possession money to buy and control our labor power. Workers could generally be free. It would once again be possible to combine labor power and the means of production organically, directly. No sale of either labor power or the means of production would transpire. Democracy between workers, rather than the tyranny of capital over workers, would become possible. Collective labor power, or as we say, workers united, would freely associate for a cooperative control of the means of production. Now this would require the self-organization of the working class and for the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism and into commodity production. That's what happened in Paris in 1871 and the Russian Revolution in 1917. And although this radical democracy and cooperation of revolutionary Paris and Russia didn't last, the example is on for us. And I'll just bring us to the end, to the last paragraph of Capital. With the entanglement of all peoples in the net of the world market, and with this the growth of the international character of the capitalist regime, there arises the world proletariat <coughs> and a growing revolt of the proletariat. This exploited class prevented by capital from realizing its potential for freedom and unrestrained productivity, but yet opposed itself to the capitalist integument. This integument is burst asunder, the nail of capitalist private property sounds, the expropriators are expropriated. So I've taken you from the first paragraph to the last paragraph. <laughs> uh, sorry for the part we had to sort of rush through, um, but there's plenty of time for discussion. <laughs>